Stanford University. It is uh, my great uh, privilege to welcome our uh, speaker tonight. He is truly a man of many vocations and avocations, and the remarkable thing about him is that he is good in all of them. In fact, he's better than good in uh, most of them, uh, the ones I know about. Um, the range of his activities go from uh, uh, making documentaries to philanthropy, uh, writing a New York Times best-selling uh, uh, comic novels, to uh, uh, organizing what in one review says is uh, one of the most remarkable uh, transnational uh, endeavors uh, ever made. A Persian author, an Arab uh, illustrator, and a Jewish editor, it says. Put the mix together, put it online, and you have the beginnings of a bestseller. And that's what he has done. Uh, I am sad to say that the subject is not as uh, uh, pleasant as he is himself. And we welcome him to the campus. And we are very grateful that he accepted our invitation. Thank you very much, Dr. Milani. It's a great honor to be at Stanford um, amidst, your, amidst such great friends. Um, I'd like to thank all of you for coming. Um, I'd like to thank my friend Dominic, who's here. Uh, taught me a lot of Persian poetry over the years. Um, I also have a small Stanford connection. My brother and his wife were both Stanford students. And so I have two nephews' compliments of Stanford. So it's great to be here. Um, as Dr. Milani mentioned, this, the topic of today's conversation, I'm afraid, Zahra's Paradise, is one that's born out of grief. Uh, beneath grief, of course, there's love. And, um, and so I must apologize in advance because as one walks down a campus as idyllic as Stanford, you feel a little bit like this, the serpent who's about to come and break some difficult stories. Um, the story that I'll be sharing with you is the story of Zahra's Paradise. Um, Zahra's Paradise is the name, of course, of Iran's main cemetery. Um, it's where, over the years, since 1979, but also from before, you've seen generations of Iranians get buried. Um, and burial, of course, is at the heart of so, so much of religious tradition. And for me, as a kid growing up, I was in Iran at the age of 12, and so I kind of saw the revolution as it unfolded. And it hit me um, as a very deep shock, and the way I experienced the revolution, it, uh, in a way as trauma as experience, was that I, um, our school was shut down. Our school, I went to a school called the Parthian School, which was across in this beautiful lush valley near the Alborz Mountains. And across our school was this building called Evin Prison. And I would always ask my friends or whoever was taking us, what's there? What's in that building? There was always a hush surrounding it. And even as a kid, this was under the at the time of the Shah, you could still sense it. And it was so strange because Dareke, the valley, is so beautiful. I mean, the, in the spring, when the, you know, when we would be, you know, I grew up there in the spring, the mountain would sort of, the ice would melt, and you would have these gorgeous streams rushing down. Wind in the trees, the shawtoot and berries, and so much of the Iran that I loved was there. And I was yet always oblivious to this little building across, across the valley. Um, until, of course, the revolution happened. And the, before the revolution, Evin prison was essentially the, um, one of the main um, symbols, if you will, that was used to discredit the Shah's regime and to discredit Savak and so on. It's like a symbol of torture and political prisons, prisoners and so on. But what was so interesting, which is, and Khomeini made it one of the sort of heart of, of his, um, of much of what he said against the Shah. What was interesting to me as a kid was, of course, what happened after the revolution, which is what I saw. Which was, again, I was growing up, I was 12. Our school was shut down, and I had a friend of mine named Gigi who was staying with us, uh, would come, because the school was shut down, she would come to visit us. And her grandfather, who was a general, had been arrested 
And I would ask Gigi, you know, how is he? How is he doing? And she would always say, oh, he's fine. They've told us that he'll be released. I'm like, okay. Until one day Gigi, did, Gigi, Gigi didn't show up. And I couldn't understand why. Until later in the day, I saw the newspaper and you opened it. And there was a list of people who had been executed. And her grandfather was amongst them. And I didn't see her ever for about 30 years. She just vanished. And then soon after that, I left Iran. And the Iran of my childhood, which was this beautiful place behind. And so I think one of the questions that we sometimes get is, well, why write Zahra's Paradise? I write it because in my heart, I think in Dr. Milani's heart, in Dominic, and in that of many of us, there is another Iran. The Iran of uh, love, an Iran where we, we are in, that was full of love and life. And so, if I'm about to take you on a journey into the cemetery, I don't do this out of a perverse love of death. I do it out of a love of life. And um, you will see why. So I'll start with the spark that triggered our decision to uh, work on Zahra's Paradise. I say our because all the illustrations in Zahra's Paradise um, are the work of my friend Khalil. We've worked on the story together. And of course, Khalil is not Iranian. Khalil is Arab. And it was very interesting because I, you know, when you're working on a project for someone who's not from your own culture, to grasp it as deeply as he did and feel it as deeply as he did was really a remarkable experience to me. And it sort of, sort of gives a lie a little bit to our, con our very tribal concepts of nationalism. In a way, Iran is the place that people who love Iran reach out to, and Khalil was one of them. Think of him as an honorary Iranian. Here's the spark. What you're watching is the funeral of one of the protesters who um, protested against the 2009 Fordian election. A mother is about to bury her son.
That was Zahra's Paradise, the cemetery, and that's the uh, mother of a, one of the victims of the 2009 protests. If you recall, in 2009, Iran held a presidential election. Those elections were contested. Thousands of Iranians poured into the streets with a very simple question, where is my vote? That question, of course, became other things. It, it grew from that point. but. Um, you know, in the melee of the millions of people who had poured out into the streets of Tehran, we got the news through the internet, just like you just did on YouTube, that one of them, one kid named Sohrab, had vanished. He'd gone to the demonstrations, vanished, and he was found around 20, 25 days later, dead. And so I'd worked as a human rights activist. Um, I'd, can't really even say I w I'd worked as a human rights activist. I carried within me the frustration of seeing my country and its children, its children reduced to a corpse and its religion reduced to a coffin. And the point that uni united us, this grief that was in Zahra's paradise, it was something I carried with me and I just couldn't find ways of expressing it. I, you know, I went to Harvard to study history, thinking that that would give me the tools, but it wasn't enough. I was frustrated. Um, if you remember, the student protests of 1999 were taking place, and I would go to various professors and say, this is going on, and they were like, well, have you written your paper on Ebna Battuta? It was just, I just, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. The, the, it was too much. And I think all of us, in a sense, as Iranians, carry with us this trauma, this trauma of seeing loved ones, and I don't care about the politics, of lo seeing loved ones constantly lost. And so the question for me was, well, what can I do to reverse this cycle? Um, I couldn't stop the murder of my best friend's grandfather, and now, 30 years later, I'm wandering around in the U.S., watching this and thinking, my God, what do we do with this? Where do we take it? What, how do I make sense out of this? And, and, I, and to be honest with you, I, I still don't really, can't really claim to have made sense out of it. But I think there's a relationship between our ideas of time and trauma and our ideas of time and absence, which are very old and ancient themes in Shia mythology or Shia history. Um, one of which is, of course, about the loss of the twelfth Imam, who vanishes and returns at the end of time. But what is that? What is the nature of that time? What is the nature of that loss? And what is it that brings it to a close? These were questions that, you know, intellectually I had grappled with, and emotionally I felt, but I couldn't necessarily bring them all together. And uh, Dominic was, we were talking, Dominic and I go back to uh, uh, Montreal when he was teaching there. And he says, Amir, you're always ranting about Iran. And finally he wrote this book. And it's true, <laughs> it's true. But what, allow, what allowed me to do a graphic novel, oddly enough, was that it, it imposed the art form, both gave, was both a very liberating art form and a very disciplined art form. And um, so it allowed me to connect with certain ideas and emotions. So, so I'll take you through now to the, some illustrations from the graphic novel. The story, though, is a very simple one. We looked at that image of the cemetery and that woman. And on her face, really, everything you wanted to know about Iran, for me, was there. Grief, sorrow, anguish, despair, um, the sense that her, literally her womb had been torn and destroyed and she was about to bury it. And of course the irony again when you think about what a cemetery is was very deep, very, very deep because ultimately in a sense the cemetery is the womb to the heavens. 
right? It's the point at which the corpse is passed on to the next world. And so it carries with it, in a religious tradition, tremendous sanctity. Um, when Khomeini first arrived in Iran, and um, it was quite, quite stunning, I was quite surprised, because he arrived and the first place he went to was in fact Zahra's paradise, because he was claiming the corpse of the victims of the Iranian revolution as his own, as a form of religious and political capital. And so, 30 years later, we're going again to the cemetery, again watching Iranians, youth and so on, being buried. But now it's under this shroud of a lie. Now, the very Islamic Republic that claimed that cemetery, claimed that sacred ground, is burying Iran's children in that same ground and concealing that murder under a tissue of lies. And for me as an activist, as an Iranian, that's just unacceptable. It's just to see father, mother, son, daughter, generation after generation going through this cycle is really revolting. And, I, and again, as a human rights activist, I'd done your usual human rights work. I'd, you know, I ran around Harvard collecting signatures when the student revolts of 1999 were taking place, saying, hey, please, Let's not hurt the students, let's pull them out of Evi. Okay, you publish a letter somewhere. Try to publish it in the New York Times. It costs $80,000 then to publish something in the New York Times. Try to turn to the Iranian community that I knew to raise money to do that. Most were scared, rightly so. They didn't, they didn't want to do it. So it was a letdown. So I'd done all these different kinds of forms of activism, and I still hadn't found the... You know, the angle, the leverage, where do, you, where do you do it? Where do you go at it from? I mean, I looked for, you look, for instance, at the French Revolution and the power of the pamphlet as an instrument for political mobilization. It was there. Um, you, you know, as again, the activist side, you wanted a quick form of communication. And again, I didn't, never thought I'd do a graphic novel. I'd read Marjan Satrapi's graphic novel, Persepolis, loved it. I'd read Mouse and loved it. But I never thought in those terms. So it was really serendipity as usual. So I'll now take you into Zahra's paradise. So we obviously had all, you know, when you're publishing a book, you always have a battle with your publisher over the title and over the cover. And so initially they wanted to call it Lot 39 because we were getting stories from Iran of secret burial grounds. And one of those burial grounds was called Lot 39, but it didn't feel like the right word. So we made, you know, it's pretty clear it was going to be called Zahra's Paradise. Then the question was, okay, well, what do we make the cover? Um, and one thing that had become very fascinating during the 2009 protests was in fact the power of the cell phone. Um, the cell phone allowed Iranians to document history as it was happening. It allowed for the birth, if you will, of citizen journalists, citizen historians, citizen artists. And so as we, as we were watching the protests unfold, Khalil and I were sort of looking at things on the internet, getting pictures, stream, collage of pictures that were coming out from Iran. And I'm sure you remember some of them. Does anyone remember any of the images that came out from Iran? Please. Which one? Yes, Neda, who was who became the, in a way the face of the student protests of 2009, Azadi Square being the Freedom Square, which is where most of the crowd had converged, right? So the challenge was okay. Well, what? How do we do this? And one thing that became clear for us was that we wanted a fist as a symbol of protest and the cell phone as what the sort of symbol of connectivity as the, the sort of visual power, the sound, everything that we were getting, we were getting through the cell phone, through what, and through what people were posting, and through the blogs. And so we decided to call it Zahra's Paradise, set it in Freedom Square, which is what you see over here, and we wanted a woman's arm holding it, because women have been 
really just doing a phenomenal battle in Iran for rights, for dignity, for privileges and so on. So that's the starting point. And of course Zahra, and so the challenge we had was, and the beauty again of the graphic novel as an art form, because I've been asked to talk about sort of the graphic novel, not so much about Iran in terms of the uh, conversation, but the beauty of the graphic novel, what it allowed me to do, was that I couldn't get enough of the actual story of what had happened to Sohrab and his mom. Uh, it was just a little YouTube clip. So what, we, what Khalil and I decided to do was to do what they call, call docu-fiction, which was to base our story, use a fictional story based on a true story. And it really was tremendously liberating because I didn't have the burden of having to get the exact facts as they were coming, as they were being created on the ground in Iran. I couldn't get into places like Kahrizak or Evin prison. No one can. It's very hard to penetrate those. Journalists on the ground can't do that. So this docu-fiction form was really very helpful. I've also worked in documentary film. And again, one of the advantages of the graphic novel for me was that when you're making a documentary film, you have to carry your camera around with you. It's a big thing, or even if it's a small thing, you have to be present in the moment as it's happening. You have to get the light right, you have to get the sound right. It's a tremendous, it's, a, it's an operation. And it's expensive, right? You need a media, you know, but we Iranians don't have our own independent media, and in a sense what we have is quite awful. Um, I wish it were better. Um, some of so so you had to create we had to create our own form our own um, media and again the graphic novel was very very practical because as a writer all I needed to do was just kind of come up with the script and the scenarios and, the, and and there was no absence of that I mean you looked at Iran and it just came at you but what was amazing was all we really needed for for it was Khalil's pencil. Um, and of course his abilities as an artist, but, but the pencil, that's a very cheap thing, right? And all he needed to do was sketch it, um, you know, and he would draw it, send it to me, I would send it back to him, and before he knew it, we had a page, we had it very fast. We didn't have all those um, dilemmas. The other thing that was very helpful, and this goes back to what Dr. Milani is saying, is that our editor, Mark Siegel, um, who sort of decided to go ahead with Zahra's Paradise, his insight was, we're going to publish this in real time on the web. So we weren't doing a classical book where you have to sort of work over a period of time and then you have a product at the end of it. This was something that was done in the open. It was like a performance. So almost from the very start, people were giving us feedback. And that feedback was very uh, precious because First of all, you could sense that you're, it's like running a marathon and knowing that there is support out there. And again, as a human rights activist, what you often experience is isolation. Nobody wants to hear about dead Iranians in Evin prison and how they're being tortured. Nobody, it's not fun, it's not, inter, it's not interesting, it's not entertaining. But if you're sort of um, a little bit not going that route, if you're using sort of more cartoonish ways of saying it, it opens up a space that allows people to come close, close to you. If I show, when I show that initial um, video, that YouTube video, it's pretty gruesome. It's the, the emotion, it's too, the pitch is too high. You can't hold attention on that necessarily. So again, the graphic novel as a cartoon form makes it made, made the trauma a little bit more accessible. So I'll now take you through it. What, what we did as we were working on Zahra's Paradise was explore different spaces. And the, one of the insights that we had was we just wanted to tell, have average Iranians speak and be seen. And one of the spaces in Iran where politics is mediated is in fact the cab the taxi ride. You go in, it's kind of like long before the flash mob Iranians invented it, you know, where usually, you know, you go into, it's like people from different walks in life, get in the cab, swear at the Islamic Republic or whatever it is, and get out of the cab. And, and so a whole political culture 
is shaped inside the cab. And so we wanted to honor our uh, many cab drivers. And of course, also play with the Iranian people. So, for instance, the opening line is, Iranians are very proud of their history. 2,500 years of Persian history going back to Cyrus the Great and before that. So we wanted to play on these tensions of, you know, a culture this old being caught in the grips of time. Again, time is one of the themes that runs throughout Zahra's Paradise. So here we have our cabbie saying, look at that, 2,500 years of Persian, Persian history, and you think these marmulaks, these little lizards, have 25 seconds to live. How many do you have? I run on my own clock. No meters, no jitters. So how do you charge people? I throw out a number. More if they're rich, less if they're poor. More if they're rude, less if they're cool. And if they're fat, by the kilo, just like the airlines. In this cab, I set the price of time. Governor of your own central bank? You bet. Call me Big Ben. The world revolves around my clock. So again, this theme of time. Who controls it? Who sets it? Who's living on whose clock? That was one of, the, one of my pet fascinations. And of course, the protests themselves. Three million people had poured into the streets of Tehran. Three million people calling for the right to vote. That's a tremendous number. Uh, when was the last time you saw three million people pouring out anywhere, in any country? I mean, it was really stunning. It was the Persian Spring. It was peaceful. It was beautiful. It was gentle. There was solidarity. There was kindness. And it was there. Another Iran was there for the world to see. And people wanted to be seen. After 30 years of Iranians are terrorists, Iranians are hostage takers, no, Iranians were freedom fighters again. They were, the, in, in a sense, at the vanguard of democracy, at the vanguard of these, all these sort of Western values, if you will, Islamic values, whatever you want to call it, but they were there. And so I asked Khalil, and this is again one of the beauties of working in a collaboration, especially with an artist, is that you can say, oh, you know, as I have over here, um, a torrent that have could June whatever, a torrent that have could, have, could have swept everything in its wake, a few late, days later were dismissed as that. You see how much the writer has to work? Not so much. But then I would ask Khalil, Khalil, can you draw me a, crowd, a three million person crowd? And it was literally like days, so he would have to like figure out all the faces. And the faces, many of them are actually based on the faces of people who were actually in the crowds in Iran. Our feeling and our sense was that we weren't the authors, in a sense, of Zahra's Paradise. The Iranian people were. They were making their blood, their stories, their skin, their flesh, their bodies the symbol of change. And so all we were doing was just constructing a little mirror to capture the reflection of that collage. And of course, the biggest chance was, you know, Ahmadinejad had dismissed the Iran our own president had dismissed the Iranian people as dust and dirt. So a lot of attention oftentimes goes to Ahmadinejad's claims about wiping out Israel. Much less attention goes to the fact that he, he has that same kind of rhetoric reserved for the Iranian people. In fact, more violent because... Anyway, dust and dirt. And this dust and dirt thing actually really bothered me. And I think, again, the graphic novel thing is like, well, where does... And, and it bothered a lot of Iranians. You, you know, the, one of the worst things to do is to step on the Iranian people's tail with an insult like that. And it incensed them. And, and part of it was, no, we will make ourselves visible. We will make ourselves heard. And so again, we wanted this collage as a sort of signature collage, so that the because of the so the world would no no we we can see our own reflection, we can create our own media, we can hear our own voice. We don't need other forms of obstacles and barriers. So this is another one. The story is narrated by a blogger. Um, so and bloggers make such a fascinating part of the story of Iran's. Uh, youth and where Iran is today. A lot of people oftentimes talk about the Guggenheim Press and what that did in order to liberate you know, Protestantism in Europe. Well, the blog is just as powerful, right? Because a blog, with traditional media, you have to have a printing press somewhere and it can come and break it. You have, you're located, you have a geography. With a blog, you don't. And so, 
it allows you to again construct and tell your own story, generate your own media. And so we wanted the story to be told by a blogger. It was our way of honoring the bloggers in Iran who were taking the risk to tell these stories. This is just a sort of um, close-up. The other thing that the graphic novel allowed us to do was to go back in time, right? What was taking place in Iran in 2009 was not something that happened out of the blue. So uh, one of the plays in Zahra's Paradise was a play on Zahra Kazemi. Zahra Kazemi was an Iranian-Canadian photographer who had gone back to Iran. She was taking pictures outside Evin prison. She had been taken in. Um, after a few days she came out in a coma. She died shortly thereafter. She was buried uh, in Shiraz. There was supposedly a parliamentary investigation into her death that got amputated and the gentleman who was behind her murder was a fellow um, Saeed Mortazavi, thank you very much, um, who, who pops up again later when we look at Kahrizak. So these stories, we wanted to show the connections with them. How is it that, the in a sense, you know, how is it that the constitution of Iran a constitution established in the name of the Prophet, established in the name of the hidden Imam, becomes a burial ground for a journalist, for a woman who's bold and brave enough to go outside Evin prison to witness what was happening in there. This, this is something that had happened earlier. So we're telling that story, and again, you see, we come back to the coffin, the damn coffin, the dreaded coffin, right? This, and the tissue of lies. And a question that has always been in my head is, well, where is this coffin? I mean, we see its material manifestation at the end of a process, but really for, it to, for anyone to be killed and lost, you need to have a whole judicial, you know, a whole, dis the distortions, the death happens in so many other places before it becomes manifest in the coffin. And so what we, and so she was a phenomenal, she was a journalist and much of Zahra's paradise was an attempt to honor journalists who were daring to go into this. So we said, you know, you know and in fact I knew her son in Montreal, her, her son Stefan in fact, um, and, um, and I actually often see him sitting in his house watching CBS News or something and there would be suddenly a thing about his mom and he would be forced to witness this suffering over and over and over again. I mean, it was really, really astonishing. And, and imagine the burden on him. He's just one person, and his mother's gone to Iran. Doesn't, he didn't speak much Farsi at the time. And then he gets the news that she's been killed. And what do you do in a situation like that, when you're faced with a state that's just snatched and murdered your mother? You have no, you don't, you know, you don't have a whole, you know, you're facing a state that's lying. And, and one of the things that are to his credit is that I actually watched him fight this and try to keep that story alive. So this was an attempt to actually honor what he was doing and honor what his mother was doing. These are some of the photos that um, she had taken, Stefan had sent, okay, let me use them on the web. And, on, and then here is a commentary about what was going on after, um, which is, uh, you know, the other great thing that I could do with my graphic novel was use metaphor, right? It's like I'm so, you often hear the Iranian parliament over and over again has whitewashed the death and murder of thousands of Iranians. It's like, okay, enough of with this parliament of crows and vultures. And I'm like, Khalid John, can you draw a parliament of crows and vultures? And he's like, sure. And the next thing you know, we had our parliament of crows and vultures. And of course, we, again, they buried the freedom of the press in Zahra's grave and so on. And so we were basically using stories to go back, to revive, to resurrect, to not let go of the memory, of the memory of our dead. Um, and, I, you know, and I'd seen what Stefan had done to do this, so it meant a lot, a lot for me. And of course, shortly after her death, is, and related to her death, was also a huge clampdown on Iranian media. The culture of the lie. So the fraud goes back a long time. Poetry 
Neda, as our friend was mentioning, was one, one of the women who was killed during the protests in Iran and became the face, if you will, of Iran. And in a way she died not just on the pavement and the streets in Iran, she died in the hearts of millions of people around the world. And again, we wanted to, um, we wanted to go back and reclaim that. So, so one of the characters in Zahra's Paradise is a fellow named Taimur, who runs a photocopy shop. And a lot of the story revolves around this photocopy shop because photocopy machine is what allows you to reconstruct identity. You know, um, when you don't have a newspaper, when you don't have access to the media, when you can't say, my, my son is lost, where is he? You have to create your own media. And so you would often see Iranians standing outside Evin prison with a picture of their son or their daughter inside. And that was really all they had to go with. That's all, you know, that's the identity thing. And then, of course, they often lie and say, no, we haven't had, we, have, we, have, we don't have such a person and so on. But it was, again, for me, fascinating to see thousands of Iranians, thousands is a little bit more, but a little bit less, but hundreds of Iranians were going outside Evin prison and chanting, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And imagine the courage. I mean, Zahra Kazemi had been killed going there. But after the protests of 2009, you know, thousands, hundreds, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, chanted outside that same dreaded prison that, you know, it seems to just be this cancer on Iran's history. And it was interesting because Allahu Akbar, God is great, being used against the Islamic Republic, not to. Khamenei, of course, figures in this story throughout. Khamenei is Iran's supreme leader. He's He's got the final word on so much. And you know, he's been there at the helm of power throughout this time, whereas Ahmadinejad, you know, the presidents and so on, constantly change. And so we wanted to show this. So I said, Khalil John, can we draw a harem with Khamenei as the, you know, head honcho and everybody else trying to? And he's like, sure. So this is the, a little critique of our supreme leader, if you will. Can't stand the guy. So June 19th, 2009, Tehran University, one week after the elections. The super, and uh, this is the other aspect of the graphic novel. This we took word for word out of the Supreme Leader's speech. It's not, it's, it's, you know, it's where you know, you're using fiction and blending it with reality. So it reads, when it comes to idolizing almighty fathers, Iran's worse than the Catholic Church. The old rule the young. They hold the stick and bend the rules. Their idea of education? Dominion over our butts. Khamenei's our infallible teacher. There's no escaping his classroom. He stares at us and speaks to us through every wall. Ahmadinejad's the teacher's pet, the supreme leader's latest bride. So of course the old queens, Khatami, Musavi, Rafsanjani and Al are, are jealous. There's no end to the jostling in our caliph's harem. Cross the teacher's line and he'll teach you a lesson. Evin's all about continuing education. If you can't memorize God's word, they'll scroll it into your flesh. God, save us from our teachers. Khamenei always presents himself as the teacher. And then, of course, this is actually, again, word for word, taken from the speech that he gave at Tehran University. And it reads, My dear children, Children, this notion of the Iranian people as children, minors. June 12th, the June 12th election was an epic event of historic proportions, yet the negative aspects made me unhappy. The president, who is trusted by the people, was accused of lying. Was that Mehdi's crime? Calling Pinocchio a liar? We called the kid who had vanished Mehdi, the um, sort of... The story revolves around the search for this lost Mehdi. Then he goes, open your eyes and see the enemy. Don't you see the hungry wolves lurking in every corner? These demonstrations are a cover for terrorists to assassinate our beloved Basiji. My heart bleeds for the people. Mehdi, an assassin? So much, most of the protests, the protesters were non-violent. They weren't going around shooting Basijis. Inside the country, foreign elements are behind the street riot rioting, the West and the Zionists. The Islamic Republic is the flag bearer of, of humanity. Wherever there is oppression, we support the oppressed. And then the blogger who tells the story, except for Iran, of course. 
And then we get into another aspect of both Iranian history, and again, this is something that the uh, that we we could do, which was, of course, to get to the crux of the Ayatollah's legitimacy. And so, this is how he ends his speech. And pay attention to it. This is an Islamic Republic, and this is his source of legitimacy. Now, I wish to address the twelfth Imam. The twelfth Imam is the Mahdi who comes back at the end of time. O Sayyid, O Lord, O Master of us all. We do what you command us to do and say what you would have us say. We are yours. You are our master. I have but my worthless life, my handicapped body, and the slight reputation granted me. All this I place in your hands. I offer it to all to you, O Lord, master of time. Again, time. O Lord, master of time. You own us, this country, and all its children. Stand with uh, all that I have, I have in your name. Stand with us, support us, save us. Blogger, dear God, strike down these charlatans and return our Mehdi. The battle of the Mehdis, right? Um, this man derives so much of his power in the name of the 12th Imam, right? A missing kid. And in the name of that 12th Imam, he's converted the Iranian constitution pretty much into a gunny sack in which thousands of Iranians vanish and into that Evin prison. And so, again, the graphic novel is a great way to... it's a form of theology, if you will, a way of combat. Then Evin prison, or our rendition of Evin prison. And, um, uh, you know, Khalil had to condense so many ideas into this image. Um, ideas about time again, right? Because time is ultimately an instrument for punishment, an instrument for, you know, you get four years in jail, ten years in jail, thirty years in jail. So it's a measure of pain, um, not just a measure of measure of debt, paying back a debt. And so the burial ground again. It, so, so we wanted to basically show what happens to a protester after they were arrested in the streets of Iran, simply for people to understand the courage that went into going out and standing, going out and speaking. It's not as though the Iranian people don't know about this, this beast, this sort of uh, what Evin prison is. And so you see them essentially from the moment they enter where they have some kind of identity and then as they get processed. And of course the face of time in Iran at the moment is that of Khomeini and Khomeini. So we wanted, we wanted to depict, depict that. And of course the relationship between time and justice so you see them going into the jaws of the beast, and there are lots of Iranians who are still in the jaws of this beast. Nasrin Sutudeh is there, Bahar Hedoyat is there. Um, you know, there is, there is just, it's just boundless. And, and some of them, you know, they're amongst the most brave, Iran's Nelson Mandela's, if you will. Um, I don't know if Sarah Shord has been to Stanford. She's one of the, um, she was one of the women uh, she's one of the sort of three hikers, three American kids who were held hostage in Iran. And what was so beautiful about Sarah when she came out from Evin prison was that she never let go of what she experienced there. And she would often talk about uh, the sound of the screams that she would hear in that prison. And in a way, we wanted to hold on to that sound because, and witness it as she, she had done. So this shows you basically as people are stripped of their identity and then how they get processed. And one of the things that's very interesting we touch on in Zahra's Paradise is of course the power of words and labels. Right? If you're called a heretic or if you're called whatever the... if you're a gay or whatever the label, Mofsede Fel As, corruption on earth, apostate, all these words have just assumed astonishing power. Um, and once they're leveled at you, and if they stick, or a drug addict, I mean, they've all become, language has become a system for sanitizing murder. And so part of the challenge that we have as activists is to deconstruct these words, and to humanize them, and to, to reclaim the people who are held and chained behind them. And of course, the chain ends up in the crane. And it's really weird, I mean, you realize that you've been traumatized by something because oftentimes when I drive by a crane and I look at it, the last thing I, you know, I don't think about construction. I think, oh, who are they going to hang? It's terrible. But the crane has essentially become 
what the Islamic Republic uses to lynch people. And it's really depressing. I mean, it's how did the crane become the symbol of Islam? How did it become the symbol of Iran? And again, the, you know, part of the beauty of art is that you can take these symbols and again challenge the symbols. You know, so this was uh, the crane and of course the relationship with time. And so that gives you some overview, if you will, of this business of doing graphic novels. And I'm very happy to answer any questions you may have. And thank you for your time and attention. Yes, please. Zara is the name of the daughter, the Prophet's daughter. It's the most sacred of names, if you will. And again, it's quite astonishing when you think about the fact that how could the name of the Prophet's daughter be attached to a cemetery, which is essentially, the, in a way, it's kind of like the womb into the heavens. But it's very strange in a culture that's so sort of theocratic and masculine that the cemetery would have a female connotation to it. Um, I don't know about the origin, I don't know about how it came to be called Zahra's Paradise. I don't know who chose that name, but it's the name, it's stuck, it, you know, everybody knows. And it's, a, it's not just a cemetery, it's almost a city, I mean, it's vast. Um, people who were killed in the Iran-Iraq war are buried there, a lot of people are um, buried there, so. And it's quite ugly. I don't know, that's a great question, worth exploring. Yeah, yeah, I don't... Please. Uh, that was a great, great, beautiful work. Thank um, you. Uh, the question is, do you, uh, are you intending to have sequels to this book? Um, because, I mean, the Islamic Republic never ceases to, to surprise and amaze. Jani uh, a few days ago, he said that there are, there are no hidden executions in Iran. Which is talk about astonishing. Yeah, you know, I would love to do another one, but it, um, this took two years to do. And it was very fast, actually, for a for a book. Um, uh, Khalil and I have spoken about doing the sequel to Zahra's Paradise, but it takes a lot out of you. I mean, emotionally. Uh, if I do, I I have this idea of going a little bit further back in time, and a little bit forward in time. So at the end of this story, I don't want to ruin it. But we've set it up for, the, for a sequel. Um, uh, part of it is also a, a function of just um, uh, finishing this documentary film that I'm working on. But yes, I would love to do a sequel. I don't want to, I'm not going to let go of the Islamic Republic, basically. Yes, please. Whereas what, what I see here is a narrative that's based on reality that we have constructed uh, to demonstrate uh, what is going on in actually real time or perhaps maybe recent history. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm having difficulty referring to that as novels. Maybe you can yeah, that's, you have a great point. I mean, I had, you know, Khalil would often say, Amir, this isn't journalism, this is fiction. But we were being very, you know, we were gliding a, a very close to reality, as you're pointing out. Um, but the subject is fictional. There is no Zahra, there is no Mehdi, you know, but there is a, there is a, there is a Sohrab, there is a Neda. And, but we needed fiction as a device for getting close to the truth and being able to move through it, you know. Um, I think one of the challenges in any, when you're, when you're going towards the arts is how do you, like, when I was doing history, I would often have trouble because you have to footnote your sources and all of this stuff. And I needed to be free. You needed to express emotion and imagination. And so in that sense, maybe it's more of a, 
you know, it's a little bit detached from reality. But I have to tell you, uh, the Buruman Foundation, which is a foundation that spent years collecting the names of Iranians who've been killed over since 1979. I contacted Roya, who's a friend of mine, and I said, Roya, this is fiction, and, but I want people to know that it's true. Do you have a list of the people who've been killed by the Islamic Republic since 1979? And she, she said, sure. And the next thing I knew, I had 16,000, I think 16,700, 900 names. And that was just a partial list of people who've been killed in Iran. Baha'i who've been killed, gays who've been killed, generals who've been killed, royalists, leftists, communists, most, you know, you name it, they're there. And so, so it's, as you're pointing out, it's true, but it's very hard to get at all the stories. I get phone calls from people whose relatives, whose names we've put in the back of the book. You know, one of them sent me a 30-page letter about what had happened to her brother and how difficult it is for her to tell that story. It's easier for me because I've always been one step removed from, from the trauma, unfortunately. Yes, please. We've gotten great feedback. We got great initial feedback. First of all, the whole thing is feedback from Iran. You know, the whole thing is images that they did, texts that they did, blogs that they did. I mean, Majid Tavakoli, you remember they had him dressed up in a veil after he was arrested? Well, we put that in. So, so really the book comes from there. And so we, you know, one of the best comments that I got was from a protester who said, you know, I was there. This is true. You, you know what I mean? And, and that, was a, that was the biggest compliment because for me as an Iranian-American, this was just an act of solidarity. I just had to do what I could do to connect with you know, my, the people I care about. Not that I don't care about others, but um, we also got a few th kind of mini threats and snarly things, but nothing that, you know... Nothing significant. Most people said, keep on doing it. Keep on going. Tell it, tell it, do it. And some people even would send their little stories and things. So. You just mentioned that you, you care about the Iranian people and what have you. So would you say this was more of a uh, uh, personal therapy for you, yourself, or... No, I don't think it was, per, you know, it's personal therapy in the sense that, you know, um, when you don't like something and you don't speak up, you are diminished. You feel that your dignity gets damaged. So, in the sense that I could do something, I feel great about it. But I didn't do this as therapy for me. I did it because I feel that the story of the Iranian people is a very important one, that what went on in Iran in 2009 is an extremely important point in Iranian history and we needed do to document it and we need to take it further. Uh, Khalil, my partner who is Arab, would always look at this and say, oh, this is going to happen in the Arab world, it's got to happen in the Arab world. And so, in a sense, it's not an Iranian story, it's actually much bigger than an Iranian story. You know, it's moved on. But I'm sure it will come back to Iran. And when it does, I feel that Iranian Americans have a duty and a responsibility to play because we can't just be watching things. Yes, please. Oh, I was listening to the radio, I think it was yesterday, and I heard a story about Nida, uh, a woman, uh, and there was an interview with a woman whose image had been used. Have you heard anything about this? She was. Another woman named Nidai with a similar... Oh, yes, campaign. yes, yes, that yes. That was a little campaign of the Islamic Republic to confuse things. But, but they had an interview with the actual woman here, and she said that, that the Republic did try to, try to use her image to confuse things, but that it actually had been co-opted by... It's, it seems a very interesting story. I think it was on, it was on NPR yesterday or today. I didn't hear that story, but you're right. I mean, it would be interesting to listen to it. Oh, for sure. In terms of the, the, uh, you know, the blurring of fact and fiction and, and all of this. Sort of for sure. Stuff. Thank you. Yeah. Thank I, you. I would recommend looking it up. I think it might have been on, uh, on the media. Well. It was on NPR. Thank you very much. I'll definitely check it out. Thank you. 
the uh, guy who was with Neda is a guy named Arash Hejazi, and he's written a book called The Gaze of the Gazelle, if you're interested, um, also. So. No, it's about uh, recyclers in West Oakland. It's a whole other subject. It's American. I went to West Oakland and I saw the, all these Americans who were living off trash. And you know, here I am, I came to America in a kind of gilded way, got scholarships and things, and I was just like, just seeing Americans surviving off trash is just, uh, so that was a whole other, it's a whole other story. I wish I knew. It's a, you know the problem with films is that they're so much more expensive than graphic novels. So I'm constantly fundraising for it. Our hope is to finish it this year. We got a grant from Sundance, so we're yeah, hopefully this year. In Iran. Well, you know, cartooning is very strong in Iran. We have amazing cartooning. Graphic novels are beginning to pick up. Um, Mrs. Satrapi's was the you know, major breakthrough, I think, for Iranians. I mean, she really, the capacity to take on, really, really create an art form and take it far. So I think Maya Nayastani has a graphic novel that's come out. A lot of young Iranian kids have contacted me and they're working on their graphic novels. Persia Blues and things like that. So it's, it's, it's coming, for sure, in the Arab world also. Yes? Uh, you mentioned the, uh, this story in the context of Iran's story, uh, in a larger, much larger context, um, and you've also spoken about the, uh, the rich history of, and how Iranians uh, think of themselves in terms of this history. I was wondering if, uh, and this is a big question. Of course. <laughs> if you could. Fortunately, Dr. Milani is sitting there, so. If there was one thing that you would uh, identify as being crucial to the understanding of the Iranian story and how different social, cultural, uh, economic causes have led to the situation in Zara's Paradise that you read about, what would it be? Boy. <laughs> Well, I think there are lots of people here who would have very good ideas, but I think one, um, one thing that gives me a lot of hope, it's not, I'm not answering your question, so, but one thing that gives me a lot of hope is the beauty of the Persian language. Um, we have, there's such beauty to it, there's such uh, an impulse towards life in that language. Um, uh, I'm in love with all the universe, for all the universe emanates from the Creator. It's beautiful. It's kind of a constitution that's there in the back of every Iranian heart. Um, and it's not, it's almost an oral tradition. Hafiz is there. So I think there's a lot in Iran that resists death, that um, seeks to reclaim life. Um, I don't fully understand why Iran has reached where it has. It depresses me. It, I, it confuses me. It's not the Iran that I know. It's not the Iranian people that I know. So I can't, ex honestly, I can't explain it out of my own experience. I can, perhaps Dr. Milani, help. <laughs> Yeah. The dark side. The dark side. I don't understand the dark side so well. You know? But it's there. I mean, look at the American Civil War. Look at slavery. Look at the Holocaust. I mean, it's there. I mean, it's not specific to any culture. I mean, we get in the grips of these um, things. But I think, for me, the integrity language is at the root of, of it all. You know, for instance, when you look at the Holocaust, insect metaphors, or when you go, we're going, when you're going to Auschwitz, you go through, there are these tracks that go into Auschwitz, and you just look at those tracks and you know that millions of people have been carted off into this, into this death camp. And then you think, okay, well, where is the beginning of, you know, when did it happen? When did the Holocaust happen? How is it the, when did, where does it start? Where does it end? Big question back to you. I don't know. But I do know that language is a major element in it, and we have to watch out for it. You look at the French Revolution, 
and the idea of the guillotine and the you know the terror and how it, in, invariably it came back to devour its own children. Robespierre died on it. Danton died on it. They, because the language has become inst- separate. I don't know. I just don't know the answer to your question. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you very much. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.